Jack Reacher caught the last of the summer sun in a small town on the coast of Maine. And then, like the birds in the sky above him, he began his long migration south. But not, he thought, straight down the coast. Not like the Orioles and the Buntings and the Phoebes and the Warblers and the ruby-throated hummingbirds. Instead, he decided on a diagonal route south and west from the top right-hand corner of the country to the bottom left, maybe through Syracuse and Cincinnati and St. Louis and Oklahoma City and Albuquerque and onward all the way to San Diego, which for an army guy like Reacher was a little too full of Navy people, but which was otherwise a fine spot to start the winter. It would be an epic road trip and one he hadn't made in years. He was looking forward to it. He didn't get far. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. Someone buys one of Lee Child's Jack Reacher thriller novels every 20 seconds, and that's on an off day. He unleashed Jack Reacher, the brawny, nomadic, six-foot-five ex-military cop, in 1997 with the publication of his debut novel, Killing Floor. Since then, Jack Reacher has featured in 23 Lee Child thrillers. There are at least 100 million copies of these books in print. Lee lives in New York, but he's in Australia to talk about the latest Jack Reacher book, Past Tense. Lee, hello. How are you? I'm fine. Good to be with you, Angus. So, uh, profiles of you, of which there are numerous, usually begin with some remark about your height, as you're rather tall. But it would seem today the more newsworthy topic concerns the height of Tom Cruise. <laughs> what is going on there? Well, you know, we back in 2005, <coughs> we were offered a movie deal. And um, that immediately introduces you to a binary decision. Do you want a movie or not? And I love the movies, I absolutely do. And I thought that to have some little thing of mine in the world of movies, in the history of movies, was just irresistible. So I said, yeah, great. And um, there was the usual amalgam of executive producers. You know, lots of production companies pile in and co-finance the thing and co-organize the thing. And one of those companies was Cruise Wagner, which at the time was Tom Cruise's production company. And uh, nothing happened then for about six years. Uh, it was in what they called development. And then in 2011, uh, a screenplay was written by Christopher McQuarrie, who was an Oscar-winning screenwriter for The Usual Suspects. And it was a fabulous screenplay. And it circulates, obviously, amongst all the interested parties, including all those executive producers. And Tom Cruise read it as an executive producer and thought, wow, this is a great screenplay and this is a great character, I want to play this guy. So um, we were all happy for him to do it because he's a fabulous actor, a really, really hard worker, and what people really don't know about Tom because it's hidden behind everything else he does, he's a fabulous theoretician of story. He really gets story, he loves story. Working with him is an education in itself for a storyteller. So. We made the first movie and then the second movie, and they were both really good, both really solid. I was very happy with them. But the readership of my books uh, never, ever really warmed to the physical mismatch between Jack Reacher and Tom Cruise. 
Uh, Rita is a huge, intimidating bruiser, um, you know, six foot five, which is nearly two meters. Uh, he's about the size of a lock forward in an international rugby side. You know, imagine an all-black or an Australian rugby player, big, intimidating, probably a bit ugly sort of a guy. <laughs> and, um, you know, Cruz is none of that. And the thing about readers, the public as a whole, consumers of any entertainment product, you cannot tell them what to think. They will make up their own mind. They are infinitely stubborn. They have their own view. And uh, throughout, they never really warmed up to that physical mismatch. And so we decided, all right, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to do feature films with Tom Cruise because times had moved on. Uh, between 2005 and now, 13 years later, uh, nearly 14 years later since uh, the deal was done, the, uh, the landscape has changed completely. We have this new streaming television thing, which um, then led to what they call binge watching, which is a completely new thing. I mean, it was not around in 2005. Nobody saw it coming. And it is, um, people call it novelistic, which is not really very accurate, in my opinion, other than the length of time that you're invited to spend. Um, but it's a probably an infinitely better way of, of putting a novel on the screen. And so there's no question that if we were coming to it fresh now, that's the option we would take. So what we're doing is is rebooting it, really. We're taking it away from the hour and a half or two-hour movie format into 10 to 12 hours of a streaming season, and we're going to use a new actor to finally try and and say to the readers, okay, you know, let's have a proper physical facsimile of Reacher on the screen. So that's where we're at now. And, um, you know, I feel I'm going to miss working with, with Cruz. He was, he's a lovely guy. He's a fabulous actor. And as I said, he's a really interesting guy to listen to on the subject of storytelling. So I want him to still be involved as an executive producer, which he will be, I'm sure. And, um, but the product is going to look different on the screen. Yeah. I did see yesterday on your Facebook page, you put out the simple question to your fans, um, who would you like to see take the reins yeah. in portraying? And there was a cool 10,000 people discussing <laughs> that question in the comments. So people are obviously invested. Yeah, they really are. And I want them to be. That's the exact word. I want them to be invested. I want them to have ownership. Because in a very real sense, the reader has ownership of the story. Because reading is a really curious thing. It's not like... Uh, screen entertainment, it's not like music, it's not like anything else in which the product washes over the consumer, just comes at them and washes over them. Reading is a two-way street. Reading is ultimately about the reader interrogating the text, at which point the story emerges in the reader's head. The reader's mental energy is being burned, the reader's calories are being used. It's the reader creating the story at that point. They literally have ownership of it. So I want them to have a feeling of ownership of who plays the characters. So I would love it if we have some kind of mass suggestion forum or some polling or some uh, participation. You know, let the readers decide. Yeah, and I guess that investment and everything that you just talked about is why the book is always better than the movie, Tom Cruise or otherwise. <laughs> yeah, isn't that the case? I mean, I think literally you could say I've seen maybe two movies in my life that are better than the book simply because the compression kind of organizes what maybe was a fairly rambling text. But oh, yeah. They are the tiny, tiniest major uh, minority. Yeah. Generally speaking, the book is always better. And, and that is because 
the reader is inventing it. It's the reader's own vision that they're seeing. And when you see somebody else's vision, it never quite matches. Absolutely. Um, Lee, here in Australia, we like to blame the influence of Rupert Murdoch for a lot of things. I'll spare you the details. But in a way, can we thank Mr. Murdoch for your career jump into thriller writing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what happened was the uh, there was a very well-established terrestrial duopoly in television in Britain uh, that actually was producing some really, really fine work. But Mr. Murdoch wanted his satellite service to gain a foothold in Britain, and so he effectively bribed the Thatcher government to, uh, in exchange for overt support in, in his newspapers, he wanted, he wanted the government to wreck and destroy that established duopoly in order to allow his satellite service to get in there, to get in the gap. And so obediently, the conservative government did that. They attacked the television industry, destroyed the union. They removed what was technically a, a cap on, on level of profit, which, of course, then tempted the owners to go for maximum profit. And they, one of the ways they did that was to fire all the old expensive veterans like me. I was 39 years old. I had a great salary. I had a pension. I had benefits. I had free life insurance. I had a parking spot, you know, <laughs> all that kind of traditional stuff. And um, we were all thrown out of work. And uh, I was then on the outside faced with the decision, okay, what to do next? And I, I thought, can I afford to retire? And, and unfortunately, I fell you know, several hundred thousand dollars short, and <laughs> so I had to do something else. And I thought, what can I do that keeps me in that broad equation of entertainment? You know, what, what, how can I preserve that transaction of doing something that other people were going to be enjoying, you know, were going to be happy about? That's all I've ever wanted to do, do something that gives somebody else simple pleasure for an hour or a day or a week. What could I do? And completely independently from that, I had been a reader all my life. All my life, I absolutely depended on, survived on, loved reading. And strangely, I had never really inquired of myself, where do these books come from? <laughs> I really hadn't. I just assumed they were kind of there um, to be enjoyed. But in the last five or so years of my television career, I, I had started to really think about it because I'd picked up um, the John D. MacDonald books about Travis McGee, which are fabulous entertainment, wonderful novels, great stories. But for me, somehow, maybe it was the right thing at the right time, I'm not sure. For me, they also acted as a blueprint. I could see what he was doing, and I could see why he was doing it and how he was doing it. And I thought, well, okay, yeah, I can, maybe, I, maybe I'd like to write a book. And of course I didn't because I was busy with my day job. And how people ever write with a day job, I don't know. I admire them very much for that. But when the day job came to an end, I, I said to myself, well, you know, you've been saying this for five years now. This is the time to, to actually do it, you know, put up or shut up. Your latest novel, Past Tense, begins as Jack Reacher is at a literal fork in the road. One path is going to lead him through to Portsmouth, which is quite a large city in New Hampshire. The other to Laconia, which is where his father was born. 
And um, in typical decisive Jack Reacher manner, he takes the path towards his past in a way. And that made me think that when you did lose that TV job, you were sort of at a fork at the road as well, like all, I guess, newly unemployed people are. Where do you think that other fork would have led you if you hadn't grabbed a notepad and pencil? That's a great question because I would have just been on the general employment market and it was pretty dismal at the time, actually. Um, I signed up for unemployment benefit, obviously, and um, part of doing that is that you're required to hunt down any vacancies that they they advertise. And the, literally the only vacancy where I lived was a warehouse man for some kind of distribution center. So if uh, I hadn't chosen to write the books, I'd probably be wearing a sort of brown canvas coat, uh, packing pallets to load on a truck. Wow. <laughs> And instead you're here in beautiful Sydney in a leather jacket talking about your fantastic thriller novels. Wow, how life plays out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, all about taking that right fork in the road at the right time. Absolutely. Um, you're perhaps the most famous adherent to the pantser style of writing. And if people aren't familiar with that phrase, there's usually sort of two disciplines, the plotters who plan everything out and the pantsers who just go for it on the seat of their pants. Um, does that mean that when you're writing, you give orders to Jack Reacher or are you just following him along? It's a fabulous question, that too, because, you know, obviously in one sense, uh, Reacher is not actually real and I'm the one sitting there doing the typing. So how is he leading me along? What it really is about, I think, is you've got to, you're just throwing yourself off a building and uh, hurtling through the air, but you're trusting that everything you've read before, um, everything that, you know, every movie you've seen, every TV show you've seen has somehow influenced you to the point where you can trust that you can instinctively uh, construct a suspenseful and compelling tale. And I think, you know, that would, was my advantage that I had always been a huge reader, um, literally from early, early childhood compulsive reader, loved it, just just lived in books. Um, and then working so long in television, it kind of imprints on your brain the, the rhythms of cliffhangers, the r- pacing, the grammar of storytelling. So I rely just on on faith that I'm gonna I'm gonna make it. I, the way I describe it to myself is I feel like a movie stuntman. I've jumped off the top of the building, and I'm sincerely hoping that the crew are going to maneuver the airbag into position before I hit the ground. <laughs> um, so in past tense, uh, Jack goes to sort of investigate his family history. Is past tense a more personal Reacher novel than the rest? Slightly it is because, and people are probably going to make too much out of this, but my own father had died just before I started writing it. And it's not that I was in any way upset or traumatized or anything like that. You know, the old guy was in terrible shape. He, he, he was in that situation. He just lived too long. You know, he had been, he'd actually should have died about four years previously, but he, intervention came too soon and they revived him and he had a miserable last four years. So it wasn't that I was upset. I was actually glad and re- relieved that it was over for him. But it did lead me to ruminate, you know, look back over our relationship. Obviously, by definition, I'd known him all my life. He was my dad. But it did occur to me, how well did I know him? How well does anybody know anybody, Uh, even a close relative, you know, your partner, your children? How well do we know them? And it seemed to me impossible that we could know them 100%. Uh, They must have hidden aspects, hidden strands in their life, maybe secrets, maybe something going on that we we would never know. 
So I was kind of speculating about that. What could there be about Rita's father that he didn't know? And so it was really an exploration of that theme. Yeah, it is interesting in the point in someone's life where they become interested in their parents' past. A bit like realizing that there's an author behind every book, you realize there's a life behind your parents. And then Yeah, and you know, grandparents behind that. And just parenthetically, there's a really interesting strand of literature right now that's you could I think it's called third generation memoir. It's a lot of people investigating their grandparents' generation, especially the sort of people that were caught up in World War Two. Um, then the offspring, the descendants, are suddenly interested in them and they reconstruct those lives. And um, it's, I really wish that everybody, everybody, all of us, you, everybody, should, should write down just a few pages about their families because we're losing history. We're losing all that knowledge. Yeah, especially as I guess, I mean, maybe that sort of third generation memoir thing is a symptom of how generations are becoming more and more different from each other. So it's perhaps becoming more and more fascinating to look back. Yes, indeed. And especially when we live kind of comfortable lives, really, we live quite bland and, and, and cheerful lives. And you look back to the, the real moments of drama in, in recent years and, and think, well, yes, our relatives lived through that. Coming back to past tense, can you tell me about this Canadian couple that come along in their dingy car? Yeah, and that is, you know, you mentioned that I'm a panster, and absolutely I am, and I've learned to rely on um, subliminal or subconscious triggers. And in that first paragraph, I, I say, Richa has spent the end of the summer in Maine. And so I thought, Maine, what is that? Oh, Stephen King lives in Maine. And so it, could it be possible to do, could I do a sort of Stephen King strand where we have this pleasant but rather hapless and hopeless Canadian couple, youngsters. They're, they're driving all the way from a remote spot in Canada to New York City because they've got something valuable to sell. And they're poor and their car is rubbish so that it breaks down right by this lonely motel in the woods. And everything looks kind of okay. It's a pleasant enough place. But somehow, like with the Stephen King novel, we know that something really bad must be happening there. I thought, could I do that? So I wanted to develop a pure kind of creepy suspense strand with that. And actually, in a lot of ways, that took over the book. I really liked those, those two Canadians. And I suppose, subconsciously, I imagined that Richard would have to intervene at some point. But... Uh, he actually shows up much later than I, I might have imagined. They do fine on their own. They, they manage on their own almost to the end. Yeah, and you're contributing there to the collective terror I think a lot of over-imaginative people have about rural motels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exclusively creepy. They must be. I mean, uh, I, it, it's just like a trope, isn't it, that if there is a motel in the woods, there's got to be something wrong with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, out of interest, have you sent along a copy of Past Tense to Stephen King? Yeah, we you know we read each other's um, new books all the time, which is easier for him than me because he writes them. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did he enjoy Past Tense? I believe he did. Yeah, you know he's he's a Reacher fan, and he actually he's mentioned Reacher in in one of his books, uh, Under the Dome. Uh, somebody somebody shows up and uh, with a sort of job recommendation from Reacher. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, has Reacher ever made it to our sunny shores here in Australia? Well, in the back of the Australian edition of Past Tense, I wrote a special short story for Australia. Uh, Reacher does come down to uh, Sydney. He's here for about five hours. He gets off a plane, 
he uh, takes care of some business and gets back on the plane. Fantastic. Is there any dangling from the tip of the Sydney Opera House sail? <laughs> it, <in> is, <laughs> it is actually set at the Opera House. Oh, there you go. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, can't yeah. wait to read it. Um, Lee, I would love to know which books you have been reading lately. Uh, I read an awful lot of advanced editions, you know, of, um, of uh, people, people's first novels, especially who want support or want blurbs. And uh, I re- I've just read a couple of really good ones. One was called Save Me From Dangerous Men by a writer called S.A. Lelchuk, which uh, was a pretty hard-hitting, pretty hard-boiled story. And right now I'm just about to finish uh, Taylor Stevens' new one, which is called Liar's Paradox, which again is a, a, re- it's a fabulous book. It's very... Uh, it's very sophisticated. It's quite deep. It's a it's an espionage and action drama, but also a family drama. Fantastic. They sound great. Um, is it true that Bill Clinton bugs you for writing advice? No, he never <laughs> bugged me for advice. I think that what he does is he reads the Reacher books and likes them, and uh, he sends me a little note usually about what he thinks about each one. And then when his book with James Patterson came out called The President Is Missing, which is actually a pretty good book too. Um, the fashion now in America and elsewhere is for, instead of doing solo presentations at bookstores, they like to do conversations on stage. So he called me and said, would I be the interviewer for their event in Philadelphia? So I said, sure. And it was wonderful because it meant that uh, this is an ex-president of the United States and he's required to answer my questions. It was wonderful. And then um, when my own book launch came up at the beginning of November, Again, you know, I was asked to do an onstage in conversation, and I thought, well, who, who should I do it with? And I, I said to my people, well, call Bill Clinton. He owes me a favor now. And he, <laughs> and he did. He showed up, and we did the onstage interview together. That's fantastic. Um, so it sounds like that your training as a writer came completely from those books that you were reading all through childhood. What are the ones that you remember? I was a very normal reader. I'm not one of these guys that claims to have read Dostoevsky when I was <laughs> seven, you know. I, I read all, I started with Enid Blyton and Just William and uh, W.E. Johns and all of those normal ones. And then by the time I was about nine or 10, I was moving on to Alistair MacLean. Uh, I would say Alistair MacLean was my first really big influence because I loved the sort of comfortable storytelling style of the guy. You know, he really sort of put his arm around your shoulder and and told you the story. And I loved his heroes who were almost too good to be true. He, He had a real knack of pushing them right to the edge of cartoonishness without ever letting them fall off. And I was impressed by the way he did that. They were wholeheartedly attractive people, but not quite too good to be true and I think I took some lessons from that and then I moved on of course to the Americans John D. MacDonald and Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and so on Um, but in general I was just a just a mad reader I would read anything and I still do I just read a book called about the history of air conditioning Uh, (laughs) I read a book called geometric patterns in medieval English brickwork I'll read anything I'm just fascinated by by knowledge by learning things by uh, experiencing different things which you can with a book you've got the whole world in your hand you can live anywhere at any time through a book Fantastic, even in the inner machinations of an air conditioner. Yeah. I love that. Well, air conditioning is really, you know, it created parts of the world. You know, parts Florida, for instance, parts of the uh, southern USA. Um, air conditioning 
permitted that development because suddenly places were habitable. Washington, yeah. D.C., you know, the capital of the United States, was a steamy, fetid, mosquito-infested swamp. Government workers who worked in D.C. got hazard pay because it was so bad. And then um, air conditioning really changed all of that. Yeah, I guess anything is fascinating in the hands of a good writer, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Nonfiction is storytelling just like anything else, and it can be just as compelling. Absolutely. Um, you said recently that you would never write books for kids. Why? Because kids are just the most vicious audience, you know. They adult readers are pretty tough, but they are, you know, they're socialized to the point where they're at least polite about it. If kids don't like you, they're going to tell you. And I'm not sure I want to expose myself to that kind of withering criticism. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, as a last question, I um, put out to my very sprawling and very bookish family that I was interviewing Lee Child and did they have any questions. And I'm so sorry to report that the most erudite question comes from my brother who would love to know your thoughts on how a fight would play out between Jack Reacher and Jason Bourne. Yeah, well, that is, uh, that's a, that is an interesting question, really, on, on two levels. Number one, obviously, Jack Reacher would win. Um, he would win with his head in a bag and one t hand tied behind him. But, of course, the real point is, generally speaking, when people ask those who would win questions, actually, no fight would take place because, generally speaking, Reacher and whoever it was would be on a similar wavelength. And they're much more likely to have a cup of coffee together and then team up against the real bad guys than to fight each other. But, of course, Jason Bourne is a very interesting exception to that question because he is, you know, mentally damaged in, in some way. So he may not be able to react in, in, in what would be a rational manner. So he may well try and fight Reacher, in which case that is a very, very foolish step. Absolutely. Well, there you go, Liam. You've got your answer. Lee Child, thank you so much for chatting to me. I've absolutely loved reading Past Tense and talking to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Angus. Past Tense by Lee Child is published by Bantam Press. It's out now in all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. If you'd like to support the Good Reading podcast, leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice. And if you're interested in the print edition of Good Reading, just visit our website for subscription details. Thanks for listening.